attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and this show's all about comics and nothing else. Or that's what you'd think, anyway, because that's mostly all I ever seem to talk about. Truth is, though, I normally am supposed to say that I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. It's just that I love comic books, I love the kinds of stories that can only be told in comics, and so when push comes to shove, it's somehow more fun for me to talk about comics on this show rather than the same movies and TV shows that everybody else is talking about on their shows. (sighs) Yeah, I don't want that to sound as snooty as it probably does, but there it is. Anyway, so one type of story that I love in comics is that sort of one crazy night thing where all kinds of weird bullshit goes down that the characters have to deal with before everything usually works out just fine in the end. Everything ends happily ever after. Now, you don't see that a whole lot in comics anymore, but I'll talk more about that later on. But, you know, for right now, I should say that the subject this time around is Adventures of Superman number 520. Now, There's nothing historic or really all that special about this issue, Adventures of Superman number 520. It's basically just Superman buzzing around doing Superman stuff. And that's the appeal of the story to me. But again, more on that later. Another thing I kind of like in comics is a fun, holiday-themed story. They're sort of rare, though, because for some reason... Just about every comic book writer feels like he's got to give us his two cents and some kind of bullshit commentary on what he thinks of that particular holiday every time one of these stories uh, ever comes up. And in fact, some holidays just get ignored altogether. I mean, when's the last time you saw a Thanksgiving-themed comic book story? Yeah, just checking. But Adventures of Superman number 520 basically dodges all of that crap. It's just a fun adventure story with plenty of action. And it's a pretty light read overall. I mean, let's face it. Nobody thinks this is the greatest Superman story there's ever been. But at the same time, I do kind of regard this and stories like it as a sort of representative sample of what Superman was all about during this era. And that makes it pretty special in my book. 
But anyway, without further ado, here's the summary of Adventures of Superman number 520. <clears throat> Publisher is DC Comics. Cover date is February 1995. On sale date is December 27, 1994. Cover price is a buck fifty. Editor is Mike Carlin. Writer is Carl Kiesel. Penciler is Stuart Eminen. Inker is Jose Marzen Jr. Letterer is Albert de Guzman. Colorist is Glenn Whitmore. And the title of the story is Christmas Thieves. So, the issue begins with Superman zipping high above Metropolis. It's late at night on Christmas Eve and Metropolis is covered in snow. He's running short on time, though. His sources have told him that Jurgen's department store received a last-minute supply of reissued Date with Debbie dolls, but they close at midnight. Date with Debbie dolls are the hot gift for baby boomers this Christmas, and Superman's trying like hell to haul balls to uh, Jurgen's department store to get Lois one of the dolls for Christmas. But all of a sudden, Superman overhears an alarm inside the store. Turns out, Loophole and his mall, Gwendolyn, are inside robbing the joint. Loophole lets slip that the stroke of midnight marks the beginning of Thieves' Christmas. The plan here is for 100 thieves to swarm Metropolis and loot the place dry. The thinking goes that Superman and the, and the uh, Metropolis police won't have enough resources to capture everybody, so theoretically everybody's safer in robbing all this shit openly. That ends up not exactly being true in Loophole and Gwendolyn's case, though, because Superman takes them both down pretty effortlessly. Two down, 98 to go. Next up, Superman foils a robbery at a jewelry store. Three more taken out of action. Meanwhile, Babe takes Mountain Man and Python out of action. Or she tries to, anyway, but a passing beat cop arrests them before Babe can do any of her vampire whoozy what's on them. Two more down. After that, a group of thieves called the Untouchables are pulling off what looks like a pretty successful heist, but then they get foiled by Captain Boomerang, who then turns around and tries to steal their loot for himself. But then Superman shows up to deal with them. And considering this is Captain Boomerang versus Superman that we're talking about here, it's over pretty quick. Altogether, that's four more down. After that, the Royal Flush Gang robs a bookies, but they end up getting foiled by Superman. The Royal Flush Gang actually make a decent accounting of, uh, of themselves, though. And even so, in the end, Superman, with an assist from the Special Crimes Unit, ends up kicking the shit out of all of them. Four more out of action now. Superman and Maggie Sawyer compare notes. The SCU's taken 17 crooks down tonight, while Superman's notched up 33 arrests of his own. That leaves another 60 thieves still on the table. On top of that, Dan Turpin's all worried that if even one thief gets away, bad shit's gonna happen. It's not gonna happen in Metropolis, though. Because everybody's pretty sure that nobody is ever going to be stupid enough to try something like this in Metropolis ever again. But what about Atlanta? Or Opal City? Those places are going to be sitting ducks. Maggie says that word on the street has got to be that another night of 100 Thieves is suicide. It will not work. And that means Superman and the SCU have a long night ahead of them. But Superman has an idea for taking down all the thieves all in one go, but he's going to need every available squad car on the Metropolis police force in order to do it.
from there. Superman and the Metropolis Police cover basically every square inch of the city. They force all the thieves into one central location, which makes it easier to bust all of them at the same time. Turns out, though, that there are only 58 crooks in their trap. That means there are still two thieves short. Luckily, though, Superman finds the other two thieves pretty easily using his X-ray vision. He interrupts Punch and Jewelry, robbing a department store and getting ready to kill the general manager. Superman takes Punch and Jewelry down using tennis balls. I shall repeat that. Superman interrupts a robbery. Then he takes Punch and Jewelry down using tennis balls. I mean, come on, how awesome is that? Anyway, as a show of gratitude, the store manager gives Superman one of the reissued Date with Debbie dolls that he was looking for much earlier in the story. At first, Superman's reluctant to take the doll as, a, as any kind of reward, but the manager says, dude, it really shouldn't be in the department store right now since it's Christmas and everything. Eventually, Superman rel uh, relents. The next morning, Lois wakes up and sees the Date with Debbie doll waiting on her pillow. Meanwhile, Clark's in the kitchen cooking breakfast. Lois wishes him a Merry Christmas, they flirt for a little while, and I think we know what they probably end up doing after the story ends. Speaking of which, the end. So, what did I think? Honestly, this is my favorite kind of Superman story. It's just one crazy night in the life of Superman. He's got a goal to accomplish, but all kinds of bullshit just keeps popping up and getting in his way because... Let's face it, Metropolis is kind of a magnet for weirdness and supervillains and thieves and all that stuff. And you know what? Speaking of which, it's, it's a real laundry list of two-bit losers that Superman has to go up against this time. I mean, Smallville Season 1 era, you know, Teenage Clark, would probably need a full episode to dispense with some of these guys, but these days... Morons like this are Superman's coffee break. All right, they're all they're all kind of a petty waste of time getting in Superman's way while he tries to find a Christmas present for Lois. And I love that. I mean, look, in comics these days, every single issue has got to be Superman going up against some insanely over-the-top world beater like Darkseid or whoever. And you just can't do a comic like this anymore where Superman's biggest crisis that he faces in this issue is basically it's finding the right present for his girl before Christmas morning. Now look, I don't want to whine and complain too much and sound like an old fuddy-duddy when it comes to the modern comics industry, but I don't know. I mean, look, it's worth mentioning that a story like this is virtually unpublishable these days because everything always has to tie into some kind of, you know, larger multi-part fucking storyline or god help us some kind of crossover event you know and you just don't get just sort of fun done-in-one stories like this anymore anyway like i said superman starts off by taking deke and uh, his his uh, gun mall out of action and deke's popped up in a couple of other stories but he keeps coming back for more even though superman has never needed more than five minutes to take him out of action and then after that, you know, he's got a couple of jewel thieves that he's got to take down. Then it's Captain Boomerang's turn. And after that, Superman's got to, like I said, he's got to take on the Royal Flush Gang. And as a matter of fact, of everybody, the Royal Flush Gang probably gives Superman the roughest fight that anybody 
gives them in this whole issue. But even that's pretty lame compared to uh, some other stuff that Superman's been up against in, in his time. I'm just saying that of everyone in this issue, the Royal Flesh Gang probably... They probably put in probably the most effort. So Now, not everything's perfect, though. All right? It totally makes sense to bring the Special Crimes Unit into this story. I can totally see where Metropolis being invaded by 100 B-list super thieves is absolutely the Special Crimes Unit's business. But what detracts from this story, though, for me, is Babe. I never gave a damn about Babe or her vampire bullshit. That story went on way too long. And as I recall, maybe I'm wrong, it's been forever since I've read it, but as I recall, nothing much ever really came of it, but it'd pop up every couple of years to remind us how lame it always was. I mean, it was, it was a story that just wouldn't fucking die. And we see it here once again. Now... It's of a piece with other storylines that were going on at this uh, at the time that this issue came out, and I believe me, I'm aware of that. But the continuity there doesn't make me somehow forget how much Babe and her stupid vampire story suck. Anyway, overall though, this was a fun little Christmas story, and these are the kinds of comics that I miss the most in the modern comic book industry. These sort of Fun little done-in-one stories that don't give us yet another world-smashing event from beyond the stars. But instead, it's, it's basically just one crazy night in Superman's already crazy life. Sometimes, the simpler stories are the better stories, and I think that's totally the case here. And then there's the moment at the end where Clark and Lois just hang out together on Christmas morning while Clark cooks breakfast. You know, I mean... It makes you wonder just why the hell anybody thinks people can't relate to the idea of a married or at least a happily committed couple in comic books. I mean, look, I don't want to get off on a rant here, but it seems weird to me that we see married couples in all other media all the time. And that's apparently okay, but only in comics is the idea of a stable marriage a totally foreign concept. It makes me wonder if the publishers really believe that line of bullshit that they're always slinging about how young readers don't relate to married couples. Or if maybe the real issue is that these editors and writers and artists and stuff, they've all been divorced so fucking many times that they're the ones who actually don't relate to it anymore, and then they're just projecting their bullshit onto the younger readers. And that actually brings up something else. Are young people even reading comics anymore? I don't know. Anyway, like I said, I'm not trying to get all angry and ranty here. I'm just, I'm thinking out loud. So just don't give it any more credibility than that. Anyway, I really enjoy Lois and Clark's little moment together on the final page of, uh, of the issue. That's my, that's my point here. So there's kind of an elephant in the room here that we need to talk about, and that is Stuart Eminen. This issue, Adventures of Superman number 520, this was Stuart Eminen's first on Superman. Now, Barry Kitson had only just left Adventures of Superman, the issue before this one. Now, as for me, I'd seen, you know, bits of Eminem's work here and there, but Adventures of Superman number 520, I think that was my first real introduction to his art. 
and I gotta say, it took some getting used to. All right. Now look, don't get me wrong. These days, I love his art. But when this issue came out, I was more of a fan of artists with a slightly more cartoony style. Still, Eminence style, honestly, I've never really been able to describe it. Eminent, Stuart Eminent, he doesn't have the same eye for photorealistic detail as Alex Ross, but he's not as cartoony as, say, John Bogdanov. So there's really just nobody out there who does it the way that Stuart Eminent does. Like I say, Eminent's style defies words, but at the same time, I've never met anybody who doesn't like his art. Hell, I've never even heard of anybody who doesn't like his art. And it's funny how just about every artist out there has at least a few detractors, but every once in a while, an artist comes along that somehow deflects all criticism. George Perez, Dan Jurgens, Phil Jimenez, Francis Manipul, and maybe a few others, they somehow manage to dodge all the haters. And I put Stuart Eminent in that same group for, for whatever reason. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, I've just never heard of anybody ever shit-talking the guy's art. So, and you know what? They're right to do it. I am a big fan of his art. Like I said, it took some time to get used to, but once I did... I gotta tell you, I am a Stuart Eminent fanboy. But anyway, so all around, I just really love this issue. It's just a fun adventure story with a little bit of a Christmas vibe. And you've got Superman, and he's got to arrest a lot of thieves and bad guys. And he even manages to multitask a little bit and flirt with Lois toward the end of the story, too. And hopefully I've proven what a Stuart Eminent fan I am now, so obviously we know the art's awesome, too. So... All around, this is just a badass little comic. And that brings me to kind of the bad news. As far as I know, this story's never been reprinted anywhere. But at the same time, how much can this issue possibly cost? Like two or three bucks at the most? I think you guys can probably swing it. My point, though, is it's worth picking up and checking out. It's great fun. And it's the type of story that you just don't see in comics anymore. And I just, I miss it. I miss this type of story. Anyway. Anyway, so I think that's about that for now. Time for a break. I'll be right back after these messages with a little bit of feedback. I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. 
And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman. Wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number one in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world and when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air, eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. On May 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. No. No. That's not true. That's impossible! Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view! Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her... So much, it, it, the, it flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it! He likes it! Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky. Speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The New 52 Adventures of Superman. 
available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libsyn.com. Okay, I'm back now, and nope, it's not time for feedback yet. I decided I wanted to talk about another Superman comic. I mean, I love Superman, what can I say? Basically, I read through Adventures of Superman number 520 in the first segment and really had a blast with it, so I decided to go ahead and read and then talk about Adventures of Superman number 521. Now... Before I get too far into that, in the last segment, I probably should have mentioned that I've been a little bit leery of taking on and talking about too much of the Burn Age Superman. And the reason for that should be obvious enough, but in case it isn't, it's because there's a podcast out there dedicated to the Burn Age Superman. And I didn't want to step on their toes, but... I've talked it over with Michael Bailey, the co-host of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, the home for which can be found at supermanhomepage.com, and Bailey told me he doesn't think he's got any kind of special ownership or claim to this era of Superman, and so if I want to talk about it, I should feel free to do so. And the way I see it, if it doesn't bother him, it shouldn't bother me, right? Besides... I love the Burn Age Superman. These were the Superman comics that I grew up reading, and let's face it, they're always going to have a special place in my heart. So, so anyway, as far as Superman or Adventures of Superman number 521 is concerned, Publishers DC cover date is March 1995, on sale date is January 31st, 1995, cover price is a buck 50, editor is Mike Carlin. Writer is Carl Kiesel. Penciler is Stuart Eminen. Inker is Jose Marzin Jr. Letterer is Albert de Guzman. Colorist is Glenn Wetmore. And the title of this bad boy is Cold as Ice. That all comes from Mike's Amazing World of DC, which you can find at dcindexes.com. But the summary of the story is as follows. The issue kicks off with... Superman preventing several collisions on an ice-covered Metropolis freeway. Roads are especially dangerous tonight because of all the snow and ice that's fucking everything up. Meanwhile, elsewhere, a young woman named Rose sits at home watching uh, the news on TV. Seems like nothing positive whatsoever is going on right now. The city's threatened by the ice storm and the courts are only just now starting to go back to normal after the night of a hundred thieves from Adventures of Superman number 520 that I talked about in the last segment. Rose is pretty upset by all this because it doesn't seem like anywhere in Metropolis is safe. She's felt this way ever since her father was uh, shot to death. She starts wondering why she even stays in Metropolis before she uh, feels that, that a headache is starting to, starting to begin. She decides she needs to get some rest at which time a split personality emerges. Rose is gone now. 
The woman stands up and decides to put on something a little bit more appropriate. She puts on a green outfit and a red wig and grabs a set of really scary-looking combat knives before hopping on her motorcycle and heading out into the night. Rose is gone. It's time for Thorn to do her thing now. Meanwhile, Lois and Clark are hanging around a nightclub with the Riot Girls, an indie rock band of the Angry Girl Persuasion. There's about a page of girl power bullshit before Rose crashes the place looking to kick some ass. Thorn, uh, Thorn barges into the office upstairs and starts in on Vince Adams, the boss of the place. She accuses him of bringing a criminal organization known as the 100 back. He'd probably be able to do just that, too, because he was their number two. Some of Vince's lackeys try to get the drop on Thorn, but she beats the shit out of everybody and even throws one dude out a window. Luckily, Superman catches him before he can hit the pavement outside. Vince then tries to convince Superman that he's an honest, upright member of society uh, these days, but that ends up getting interrupted by one of uh, Vince's lackeys trying to sneak up behind Superman, which is Thorne's cue to literally get the drop on him. The thug immediately volunteers to spill the beans about a shipment of drugs coming into Metropolis, but Vince shushes him. Too little too late, though, because Superman had already seen traces of methamphetamine on Vince's sleeves. Before Superman can arrest Vince, though, a, a virtual army of Vince's thugs come out of hiding, armed with shitloads of weapons. Vince knows that, super, that none of this stuff is actually going to hurt Superman, but it will slow him down, which, in the end, is all Vince really needs. Or so he thinks. The army of thugs opens fire on Superman, who covers Thorn while she chases Vince down. From there, Superman beats the piss out of all of Vince's minions. Meanwhile, Thorne chases after Vince and nearly gets run over for her trouble, but Superman rescues her just in the nick of time. Because that's how Superman rolls. Superman deposits Thorne on top of her roof and tries to figure out just what the hell's going on. Thorne tells him that Vince is putting the 100 back together. The 100 is a gang of killers and thieves, and Vince used to be a pretty high-ranking member of the organization. Superman says he hasn't heard anything about that, so... Thorne mentions the night of 100 Thieves from Adventures of Superman number 520. She says that was a preview of coming attractions. It was a message. The number 100? That's not a coincidence. Thorne's absolutely positive that Vince is behind all this, and she won't stand idly by while good people get hurt. Good people like her father. At that point, Thorne then gets pretty upset, and Superman offers to listen to her talk about it, saying that, a lot of times, talking about painful things is the best way to move past them. They get interrupted by the, by the riot girls making a completely unnecessary citizen's arrest. They pin Vince Adams to the ground and hold him there while the police arrive. I say it's completely unnecessary because this is Superman that we're talking about here. And so I'm thinking Vince probably wouldn't have been able to get very far. But that interruption separates Superman from Thorn long enough for Thorn to make her getaway. The end. So, what did I think? I gotta tell you, man, I really dug this story. I mean, there's an obvious connection here to Night of a Hundred Thieves from Adventures of Superman number 520. You could view Cold as Ice from here in Adventures of Superman number 521 as a sort of continuation of all that. 
Obviously, this is really Thorne's story, though. And I've always really liked Thorne. In fact, I like the idea of a superhero having a split personality. And I just kind of dig the idea of a more brutal and vengeful superhero hanging around Metropolis. It makes sense to me that other superheroes would be attracted to Metropolis just like Superman is. Maybe because of Superman. It plays for me that characters like Supergirl, Thorn, Guardian, Gangbuster, and other heroes also hang around Metropolis and help out when they can. But here's the thing. Not all of them are necessarily going to have the same worldview as Superman. Thorn isn't the kinder, gentler superhero that Superman is. She's out to kick some ass and put the fear of God into thugs and lowlives who'd otherwise uh, hurt innocent people. People like her father. Now, as far as I know, Thorne's a pretty unique superhero in that her civilian identity doesn't even know that she has multiple personalities or that she spends time running around as a superhero beating the shit out of people. This seems like a very Marvel idea to me. Now, that's not a criticism, and it's really not a compliment either. It's just, it's a fact. And to me, this just seems like the type of concept that you'd probably see in a Marvel comic book. But I really dig Thorne. She's a cool character. And as I, as I recall, I don't think DC ever did much of, uh, too much of anything with her during this era. She popped up in the Superman Legacy from like 1992 or 93 or something like that. Obviously, she's in this story right here. And I think she made an appearance or, or something in some Green Arrow story or another. But I think that's about it. And honestly, I, I could have used, a, I don't know, a Thorn miniseries or something. I don't know if you want to make Thorn into a, an, an ongoing title of her own. But I do think that this character has a lot of disco potential. So anyway, so all that's the good stuff. The not-so-good stuff is the Riot Girls. As I said, they were this all-girl rock band that was hanging around Metropolis and stinking up Superman comics for a while there, and I gotta tell you, I always hated them. I just, I thought they were vapid and annoying. I mean, look, on the one hand, there were these supposed feminist rockers. Okay, cool. I mean, I guess the Indigo girls were busy or something, so, but whatever, it's cool. Here's the thing, though. From, from what I can remember, they barely knew how to play their instruments, and they weren't very smart. And so, I mean, that's, just, that's aggravating to me on two different levels. I mean, they call themselves femi uh, feminists, and you can't go a single page without getting inundated with all this feminist theory and Gloria Steinem and girl power bullshit. And if that offends you, fuck you. I don't care. My point here is that the Riot Girls talk... They just talk about all that shit non-stop. But they don't do much of anything to actually put that into action. They just talk about it. And like I said, they're pretty stupid. I don't want to say that's offensive, because I think people throw that around way too much. But it is annoying when they puke their feminist stuff all over me one minute and then act like total nitwits the next minute. I always thought that feminism was supposed to be about empowerment and enfranchisement, but there's none of that with the Riot Girls. I mean, yeah, they talk about it, 
but they're brain dead and totally inept at everything. I mean, I have to wonder just what the fuck the message here is supposed to be. Only idiots are feminists? Not that I care, because, understand, I mean, look, that that, that over-the-top brand of feminism just annoys the piss out of me anyway, but I guess what I'm saying here is that I just have no idea what Carl Kiesel's trying to say here. Anyway, it's not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. I mean, the Riot Girls only appear on just a few pages, so basically long enough to annoy you a little bit, but that's about it. And so, in general, I really dig this issue. And just like last time, Stuart Eminem really knocked it out of the park with his art. I just love his majestic take on Superman. Adventures of Superman as a title had some really awesome pencilers do the art over the years, and Eminem uh, carries on that tradition in fine style. It's just, I love his art. It's great. And, as with Adventures of Superman number 520, I don't think this one's ever been reprinted anywhere. But, also with Adventures of Superman 520, it's not like this issue is really all that hard to find, or would even cost all that much to pick up from a 50 cent box or anything, and both issues are definitely worth checking out. So, so there's that. So, alright, well I think that's that, so time for another break, and then some feedback. It started in November 2010, when one guy decided it was time to show the denizens of the internet that there was more to Superman's adventures from the 70s and early 80s than Alan Moore and Kryptonite Nevermore. Now, three and a half years later, that mission continues. This is Superman in the Bronze Age. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every week I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era on Superman in the Bronze Age. Join in the fun at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am back! You need to take the trash out. Hey, I'm trying to make a trailer for our podcast. Oh, you mean Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? 
Why, yes, that is what I mean. The show where you and I discuss all things geeky. Comics, TV, movies, books, you name it. Well, are you going to tell them that you can find the show at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com? Well, I think you kind of already did. And that new shows will be posted bi-weekly, every two weeks? I was, but you just kind of did that too. Well, see, now you can go take out the trash. Great. So join us, Cindy. And Chris. Franklin. For the Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. Okay, I'm back now, and I've got a little bit of feedback to go through, and, you know, I'll be honest with you, this morning when I woke up, if you'd asked me, I would have bet you a million dollars that it's really unlikely that I'd feel like recording anything today. Uh, Usually, not always, God knows, but usually I don't record stuff this show on on work days right because my whole job involves me talking a lot on the phone and so at least in my opinion it's a lot to ask for to hope that when I get home from work I do more talking anyway but this is the hand that I've been dealt so I'm I'm gonna ride with it basically I don't know. I just, I guess I felt like recording today. There's really no deeper meaning to it or anything like that. I just felt like recording a little bit and going through some feedback that I've gotten and basically just doing some normal stuff because this is one of the few times I've ever really had the, you know, this place all to myself. And it's, I I guess it makes sense to want to use, use that as much as I can make sense I guess uh, or maybe another way to put it is um, I guess just make the most of it and so you know that's basically what I'm trying to do right here so anyway that's that's pretty much that so I guess to get into uh, you know the subject properly though uh, this this first bit of feedback because I'm gonna try to you know work through a couple of uh, emails here this first bit of feedback comes from my old friend, Famboyamus Prime, title of which is Transforming Robots, Scripts, and Magical Psychos Must Die, Wreck and Rule. Dated July the 29th, Famboyamus Prime writes, Hey Magnus, I agree, the Magical Psychos must die. Of course, For Dexter, it'd have been funny if if he got in a rear-end collision when he was transporting one of his dead bodies. Yeah, that would prove, even with his, his crazy manipulation skills, still can't plan or deal with the dipshit that runs a red light or whatever, or hits his uh, car, and his massive amounts of plastic and dead body all get exposed. I mean... He'd at least have to kill someone else just to cover his secret. And that could have played out to be his downfall. 
or questioning himself, given it it wasn't one of those worthy, quote-unquote, to be killed. It was just some idiot who hit his car. One thing on things like Smallville Season 11 comics and Batman's Batman 66's comic series, well, more on what you described on described on movie scripts or such being adapted has already happened. Freddy versus Jason versus Ash literally was the script for the sequel to Yeah, but didn't get filmed. They've also done that using Kevin Smith's script for a $6 million man movie, being the opening story arc of the Dynamite $6 million man series. I'm going to put this thing on pause and say, yeah, I think uh, the hosts of Dinner for Geeks at one point really had a major boner for that $6 million man comic book series. Now, just to put it all out on Front Street, the $6 million man really is before my time. That's just not my generation. And so it's a little much to want me to read that series. So I, I had absolutely no stake in that series, you know, one way or the other. So, but I, I and, and just to kind of clue the rest of you in, I think there's gold mine potential here of using basically old media to create new comics. And I guess what I mean by that is, imagine a comic book series that continues the adventures of the Reeve Superman. Although that would bear a striking resemblance to Superman comics published from, oh, maybe 2006 up through 2011 and through there. So arguably we were kind of there already to begin with, but nevertheless. Um, Or maybe a comic book series or miniseries or what have you based on the Tim Burton Batman. Or hell, the Joel Schumacher Batman. You know, basically though, my argument is this. We live in a, in a world now that can support, I guess, multiple continuities in comics. And I think that's, arguably, that's a, that's a new thing in, in the comic book industry that we've never really been able to do this before. And so now's a pretty good time to be able to fucking do it. That's what I'm saying. Anyway. That, I think, is what Prime is responding to there, but I reserve the right to be wrong. To get back into Prime's email, though, he writes, Don't think it'll be a cash cow, but it is an option worth exploring. The Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash limited series did well enough to get its own sequel, after all. Sorry this one's short, but it's about all I had in mind. Signed, Fanboy Miss Prime. And dude, don't, don't apologize. I mean, number one... I appreciate all feedback. You know, hell, I read that one asshole's uh, negative iTunes review of my show, so, you know, anything's better than that, right? But I appreciate all feedback, and even if you don't have a whole lot to say, well, that's fine, you know, no big deal. It's not written in stone that you have to, you know, send huge, uh, huge emails or anything like that, so if this is all you had to say, dude, that's totally cool. So, anyway, so I guess, though, to... um. Uh, to move on to the uh, to the next email, this comes from Professor Allen from the Relatively Geeky Network. Professor Allen, uh, the uh, subject of this email is Superman, etc., uh, dated July the 29th. And then Professor Allen writes, 
Trentus. Congratulations on not slowing down after the epic, tremendous classic that was episode 50. As I write this, you're at the beginning stages of the Superman coverage, and I look forward to where you're going with that series. I personally like the concept of a Kryptonite Nevermore style of a depowered Superman. I like when he has to struggle a little bit physically to defeat a foe, or maybe even think his way out of a difficult situation. Although, I don't like the super brain, super smart concept either. The kind of drama that I personally like reading about is more likely to come from a character who can't freeze breath in an ocean or juggle a planet. But that's just me, and I recognize that taste is taste. I'm going to put the, the uh, good professor's email on pause here and say, yeah, you know, on the one hand, I totally understand where you're coming from. But if I've got a criticism of the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, it's that Denny O'Neill went a little too far up his own ass in terms of giving us a, a more fallible and, I guess, dare I say, more relatable type of Superman, right? Something like 15 or 16 years before John Byrne even tried to do it. And I guess my opposition to that lies in the fact that I believe that Superman ought to be a font of moral certitude, you know? There, by the time he puts on that Superman outfit, if the guy has any angst at all, it's that he, he's, on some level, he feels like he's not doing enough, you know? Or if he questions anything about himself, it's whether or not he can do more, you know? But the idea of a Superman who doesn't see his own judgment as being in any way superior to anybody else's, and for that matter is clearly, in quote marks, uh, more fallible than anybody else, that's the part of the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline that always just kind of rubbed me wrong, you know? I just don't like that. Now, I'm not saying that's what you're gravitating to. I'm just saying that's one of the things about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline that I ultimately kind of feel a little turned off by. You know, like, especially towards the end, that last, I don't know, like the last two or three issues of that storyline, it just kind of feels like O'Neill was going uh, maybe a little too far out of his way to call Superman's judgments into question. You know, cast doubt upon Superman's perspective and his place in the world. And that just kind of bothers me. So, as to your actual points, though, the stuff that you mention... I kind of like the idea of a Superman who has to sweat a little bit in order to save the day. But ultimately, I think the, the drama of a Superman story isn't so much in whether or not Superman's going to save the day. Because on some level, it's just as certain that he's going to save the day as it is that Batman will. To me, what ultimately draws me into a Superman storyline is, I guess, his sort of... I don't want to say godlike perspective on things, but... That sort of... I even know how to put it. I mean, it's not aloof. It's not godlike. It's not... It's just a different perspective, I guess, on the world. This, this perspective that I think he, he was sort of famous for, especially during the Bronze Age, when Superman kind of... I don't know. I, I guess I want to say he, he took his own judgments for granted. You know, the fact that he was right. And that, to me, is what ultimately works to draw me into a Superman story, right? And so, 
you know, different strokes for different folks, as you say. But anyway, I just, I felt like I needed to say it. So anyway, to get back into the good professor's email, though, he writes, as always, thanks for the nice thing you said, nice things you said about relatively geeky in general and the quarter bin podcast in particular. I appreciate the podcast being appreciated by podcasters I appreciate. Keep up the good work. Signed, Professor Allen, host of the Quarter Bin podcast and co-host of the Short Box Showcase. And let me just uh, put this all on pause and say, guys, I'm not sure if I even have any listeners who aren't listening to the Relatively Geeky shows. But in the off chance that I do, that some, which is to say that maybe some of you aren't listening to Relatively Geeky, guys, you're only hurting yourself. You know, there are... That at least as far as I can remember, that network has really three shows, which is to say Uncovering the Bronze Age, hosted by Emily, Professor Allen's daughter. Then there's the Quarter Bin podcast, hosted by the good professor himself. And then there's their, what I think is their franchise show, the Short Box Showcase, where Professor Allen and Emily both talk about, I don't want to say specific comics necessarily, although there's that, more that they talk about, I guess, tropes of comics or elements of comics. I mean, it's topical to comics, but it's not necessarily specific comics. Now, that having been said, yes, they, you know, there, there are you know, circumstances when they do talk specifically about specific comics, and that's fine. I'm just saying, though, that it that's not necessarily the franchise of their show. And, um, and I'm, now I'm actually, of course, now wouldn't you know, I'm, I'm blanking on it. But um, I, I'm, I'm actually very positive now that I think back on it that they did a, um, a, uh, an episode about um, this Marvel Comics miniseries. Actually, you know what? I'll bite my tongue. I guess I can't say that. Marvel Comics doesn't do many series. Heavens no. They do they do limited series. So, hmm, shame on me. Which I don't know. I've always thought that was kind of dumb myself that uh, you know, it just it just kind of seems a little bit pretentious to me because we've all been in the in the the comic shop at some point and you talk about a Marvel mini series and then there's just some pretty uh, pretentious douche nozzle uh, marveled guy in the um, in, in the shop who actually hears you say that and then he has just a you know just with the utmost smugness um, uh, say well actually it is not a mini series it is a limited series because Marvel Comics doesn't do mini series they do limited series, you know, and just that really comic book guy type of voice, and anyway, so, wow, so, uh, huh, that actually turned into a little bit more of a rant than, uh, than uh, I actually in, intended it to, so, wow, okay, um, well, anywho, to, to kind of bring it all back on, uh, on a topic, though, um, basically, they did a, uh, that is to say, Professor Allen and um, and uh, Emily on uh, the Short Box Showcase. Uh, they did a, uh, a a show, 
And it was it was basically it was all about that White Tiger limited series that came out ages ago, um, which is to say Angela del Toro. Now, I haven't really talked a whole lot. In fact, I don't think I've ever talked about Angela del Toro. But I've always really had a soft spot for the White Tiger, right? I just I like her. I dig her as a character, and I mean specifically Angela del Toro, right? I. I, look, I'm not trying to be a dick about it, but I guess usually minorities in comics, it's always about, hey, look, there's a minority and they're in comics. But you don't really get that kind of bullshit with Angela Del Toro. It, she's a character, a very well-written character, and she's a superhero. And I just like the White Tiger. And in fact, it, honestly, a lot of that sort of, I guess, spins out of my affection for the Brian Michael Bendis run on uh, Daredevil. And so I'm going to save that for another time. But bottom line is, God, I really am off topic now. But my bottom line here is, guys, that is a great mini series, limited series. That is a great limited series. And it's a great episode of the Short Box Showcase. Episode number seven or eight or six. I don't know. Fucking it's one of them, right? Fairly early on in the run of uh, Short Box Showcase. And so my point, though, is that to me, and I'm not disrespecting the Quarterbin podcast or uncovering the Bronze Age, I would never do that. But to me, there's something that ju- that's just really freaking cool that happens when Professor Allen and Emily podcast together. I just really dig that. And Anyway, so I guess, again, what I'm saying is if you're not listening to their shows, end of the day, guys, you're only hurting yourself. So do the right thing. Listen to their show. It's a lot of fun. And they're both extremely intelligent. And they bring a perspective to comics and the discussion that, guys, you can't find just anywhere. All right? Not just anybody is qualified to make the the, I don't know, the comments and the references and even the judgments that they make. You know, it's not to say that I agree with everything they say, but I've never come away from their show and, and not thought long and hard about what they've said. So anyway, and on top of all that, it's just a lot of fun. It's fun to listen to family members talk about this shared hobby because and in fact you know what I've wondered more than once if this isn't part of the appeal of the short box showcase and everybody's just afraid to say it but the reason that we all love it so much is because we as as geeks I think would love love fucking love to be able to have that type of relationship with our family. And I don't think very many of us do. You know, my, my family, look, I freely admit, I've been the black sheep of my family for a lot of years about a lot of different things. Not least of which being my, my uh, I guess my geekness, geekitude, whatever you want to call it, interest in comics. And that's always kind of, that's all, that's just something I've never really been able to share with somebody that I'm a that I call blood relative, you know? And because of that, 
there's a part of me that just loves listening to a father talk about that stuff with his daughter. And that they have not just the blood bond, now they have this too, you know? And my suspicion, I don't think anybody's ever said so, but I think my suspicion is over and above the quality of the show and how good it is and how much fun it is to listen to. We all, I think, have a little bit of wish fulfillment going on whenever we listen to those two. Uh, just talk about geek things, you know? Because one of the things uh, I feel fairly confident of is that the day's never going to come when I talk to my father about the, the trope of the teenage sidekick in superhero comics. But damn it, those two did. And it was a great fucking episode, too. But more over than that, it just it felt like, wouldn't it be great if I could do that? You know? And I think that's what a lot of people kind of get out of it. <coughs> oh, boy. Sorry about that. Uh, that sneeze just kind of came out of nowhere. Hmm. Forgive me. But it was a dry sneeze, and that's what matters. So there's no real mess to clean up. So thank God for small favors. So anyway, wow, now I really am rambling. All right, so to get into the next email, let's see what we've got here. This is an email uh, that uh, is dated July the 30th. Subject line is Your Promo's Background Music. It's written by David Thornton. And David says, Hi. I recently heard your promo and was pleasantly surprised to hear Dream Theater music playing in the background. Given your excellent taste in music, I had no choice but to download your first ten episodes. Oh boy, heaven help you. At the moment, I'm listening to the wonderful episode 8, which focused on the very entertaining Star Wars Infinities miniseries. If the rest of your Star Wars and Superman-related episodes are half as good as episode 8... I can't wait to dive in. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, dude, you know, look. <laughs> um, okay, number one, thank you. All right, I really, I, I really do appreciate that, right? And so I really hope I don't come off sounding like a smarmy jackass when I say that, you know, those first several episodes I made, I look back, I can't even really listen to them, to be honest with you. I know they're a little bit rough, and oftentimes, you know, they're not everything that maybe they could have been. And it's strange to think how, my, how much goodwill those first several episodes won for me. But at the same time, I'd be lying if I said that I'm proud of every single aspect of them. I think a lot of things really could have been handled better from a production standpoint. And so um, I'm really glad that you enjoyed them. So thank you very much. I'm, you know, I, again, I really, do, I really hope you don't take this as me spitting in your face because um, that wouldn't be cool. I would never do that. So, you know, thank you very much. I appreciate your comments there. But like I say, it's my appreciation of that is sort of tempered by um, the knowledge that those episodes maybe aren't as good as they could be if I had the chance to do them today. But I look back at it and think, you know what, it's, first off, I think it's kind of an arbitrary thing to look back at the past maybe and say that, you know, so-and-so or such-and-such could have been better or maybe, I don't know, more slickly polished or just whatever. But I, I don't know. It's just, 
I guess the I, I guess using that stuff as a foundation is where I is part of how I got to where I am today. Sitting atop a, uh, a just this huge, huge stack of hundred dollar bills of my Demonzo core fortune. But at the same time, you know, I on the one hand I wanna say that yeah, those episodes I own them and they're a legitimate part of this show's history and all that, but I gotta tell you I really wish that certain things could have been done more smoothly. So I don't know, but either way, I'm glad you're enjoying it, and I really hope you, uh, you know, stick around uh, because there's, uh, I think there's there's been some good stuff after episode ten, and I also think there's some good stuff coming way down the pipeline in the future. So hope you uh, hope you've stuck around. That that would just be really cool. So anyway, to get back into David's email though, he writes, by the way. If you ever feel like you need a break from talking about geek culture during your podcast, I'd love to hear your thoughts about Dream Theater. I want to put this email on pause and say, for those of you who don't know, Dream Theater, and I don't know how you couldn't know this by now, but my theme song is actually a, uh, it, it's sort of a hodgepodge of two different Dream Theater songs. The first is The Dance of Eternity, and then after the part where it goes silent, it segues directly into Overture 1928. Both of these tracks can be found on Dream Theater's album, Scenes from a Memory. Now, what happened was, as far as like Dream Theater is concerned, and I guess my fandom of that band, uh, what happened was, I was, and I think I've told this story before, but there was a point when I was a uh, senior in high school, and I was diagnosed with mono. And I mean Satan's own case of mono. Every fucking symptom on the list, I had. And then some, right? And the doctor remarked later that he was surprised that I survived it. Because that's how serious it was. But anyway, so... The end result of that was that I had to miss something like two months or something like that of my senior year in high school. And... That's a lot of downtime, guys. And so what happened was I was basically trying to find ways to fill the hours. And word reached my ears that this band called Dream Theater released a CD where they played uh, this sort of Led Zeppelin medley, right? It was a, uh, a Led Zeppelin, uh, it was sort of a series of cover songs from Led Zeppelin. Now, for those of you who don't know, I am a huge, giant Led Zeppelin fan, which is to say that my Led Zeppelin fandom is huge and giant. I actually am fairly small in physical stature. Uh, And so I was kind of at a point where, number one, like I said, I, I was willing to do just about anything to keep my mind occupied, but number two... I never really listened to very much Dream Theater, but I knew that they were very technically accomplished as far as musicianship is concerned. And honestly, as much as I love Led Zeppelin, I wouldn't say that they were a technical band at all. You know, they were more about not even the emotion of the songs, but more, I guess, the atmosphere of it. Like, what does the song sound like? What, I mean, what mood does it set? And a Led Zeppelin song is never, it's never about whatever the song's about, because that's just incidental, in my opinion. It's more about the mood of it, you know? 
anyway, and so it, it just kind of felt like it was going to be a, a stylistic clash, and so for some reason, that sort of appealed to me. So headed out, picked up the CD. Uh, the Led Zeppelin medley, by the way, can be found on this uh, EP, the Dream Theater released, called A Change of Seasons, and took it home, listened to it, and it was basically about what I what I'd expect elements of the of the uh, medley were very well done but like I say the simple fact of the matter is that dream theater is a very is a very technical band does that make sense they're very musically proficient they're very technically proficient and you know, Led Zeppelin, the individual band members, are monsters and legends of rock for a reason. But not from a technical standpoint, necessarily, you know? Not necessarily classically trained. I mean, I think John Paul Jones had classic, uh, what, we, what you might call, class, he, he was classically trained. But by and large, the members of the band just weren't. And so it was about the, it, it was just about as... I don't know, contradictory as you might expect. You know, that a very precise, very exact guitar playing that John Petrucci kind of specializes in. Playing uh, these Jimmy Page guitar licks. That honestly, Jimmy Page, for everything else I could say about him, he's a kind of sloppy player. Because again, his songs aren't necessarily about whatever the fuck they're about. It's about the mood of it, the atmosphere. You know, and so he plays just kind of sloppy. It's a stylistic thing. And he's just kind of a sloppy player. And so you have John Petrucci playing these playing those same those same solos and whatnot, but very exact and every it's just I don't think it worked as well as it could have. You know, the Achilles Last Stand portion of the uh of the uh of the Led Zeppelin medley, I think turned out really well. But by and large, I don't know. I'm not sure that that was that medley was everything it might have been. So, anyway, so that having been said, though, it was still a gateway into Dream Theater's music, and so I pretty much started at what I consider to be that band's true beginning, which is Images and Words. And I really wasn't a I guess really cognizant of the fact that there was in fact a genre out there called progressive rock and that Dream Theater were sort of reinventing that for a younger generation calling it progressive metal but the same basic rules thereof still kind of applied and everything and I really liked Images and Words I thought it was a very it was just it was it, I, I shouldn't say fun like enjoyable you know exhilarating to listen to there's, a, I guess, an intellectualism that goes with any type of progressive music, and you've got to be in a certain type of mood in order to listen to it, you know? And as it happens, I was in such a mood to listen to it, and I regard Images and Words as being one of their, one of their better CDs. At the time, I was actually prepared to say that was top dog. That was the best thing they'd ever done. And so, so it went, you know, picked up all of their other CDs, and... Honestly, the only one that really left me cold, especially in the beginning, was uh, Falling Into Infinity. And yes, I realize there's an entire bullshit behind-the-scenes story behind that and what was going on with their record label, and they were sort of trying to push Dream Theater 
this progressive metal band into being, I don't know, they're trying to do singles and top 40 types of songs and pop music and stuff like that. And there's nothing wrong with that type of music. It's just not the kind of stuff that Dream Theater is ever going to be successful at, right? They're better than that. They're, well, bigger than that, for sure. And it's just not, it's just not going to work for them. And so that's that. And I guess the record label eventually realized that because they gave Dream Theater pretty much a creative blank check to do whatever they wanted to do for their, for their follow-up to Falling Into Infinity, which was scenes from a memory, from, like I said, from which comes my theme song. And I realize they've done similarly ambitious albums since Scenes from a Memory, to my mind, there's something special, I guess, about scenes from a memory. And I regard that as being sort of, that's their Led Zeppelin four, if you ask me. You know, they were never, for, in my opinion anyway, they were never quite that dynamic ever again. They were never that creatively charged they were never that, I don't know. It just, fucking, Scenes from a Memory just works for me as an album. I love it. I loved it when it first came out. I love it to this day. I've, I've loved it the entire time in between. To me, it's just a great album. And to me, it's illustrative of everything that's possible to do with progressive metal and progressive music, really, in general, as a genre. You know, and flash forward a couple of years because like i said i mean they released similarly ambitious uh, types of concept albums uh since then and then you get into oh gee well what, like 2010 2011 something like that and that's when the drummer of the group mike portnoy left the group now guys keep in mind he was one of their main songwriters in fact really one of their main creative talents he was a kind of quasi manager businessman type of dude and oh yeah founding member of the group right he's not easily replaced but he went ahead and left the group anyway and honestly i kind of felt like okay this is where i can sort of bow out on dream theater now i mean i have no idea who mike portnoy's replacement on the drums is going to be I'm just pretty sure I don't care to continue on with this band anymore. To me, Dream Theater, it's, it's a James Labrie on vocals, John Petrucci, lead guitar, John Mung on bass, Mike Portnoy on drums, and I would say probably necessarily it's got to be Jordan Rudis playing, playing keyboards. To me, the magic of that group comes from that com combination. I'm not saying that G Dream Theater didn't do amazing songs when Kevin Moore played keyboards or when... Now I'm blanking on... <laughs> I'm blanking on the Falling Into Infinity guy. Um, uh, Derek Sherinian. When he played keyboards on Falling Into Infinity, there are some great fucking songs on there. End of the day, though, Jordan Rudis is... He was the man to, that always should have been on keyboards in that, in that group. And 
you take any one of those individual elements out of it, and something gets lost. And I don't mean there's now a different drummer. I mean the whole dynamic of the band changes. I dare say that there are certain bands out there. All it takes is changing one of them. And what you end up with is a completely different band. And I think maybe one of the most famous examples of that is probably The Who. After Keith Moon died, of all things, they hired... What was that guy's name? I think it was um, um, Kenny Jones to replace Keith fucking Moon. Kenny Jones? Really? Whatever. And the results were about what you'd expect, right? It was a different band at that point. And expecting that new band with Kenny Jones playing the drums to reach anywhere near what The Who did, which I don't think was ever all that great to begin with, but is a damn sight better than the Kenny Jones era. I don't know. It just it kind of feels like it's it's asking too much. You've changed up too much of the formula. Even though it's really only one person, like one different member, I don't know. It's just not cool. So... Whatever. And so, look, that band is still going today. Dream Theater with their new drummer. His name escapes me. I wish him all the best. I hope they do great. But for my money, Dream Theater ended when Mike Portnoy left the group. And that's just the way that I feel about it. Not trying to be disrespectful to anybody. Not the band members who are working their butts off to make the best music they can. Not their fans who are just totally in love with this new version of the group. I'm just saying that for me, Dream Theater has James Labrie on vocals, John Petrucci, lead guitar, John Mung on the bass, Jordan Rudis playing keyboards, and Mike fucking Portnoy on the drums. And to me, any one of those elements, if they're missing, that's just not Dream Theater to me anymore, you know? And uh, so, just take it as a personal preference. You know, David, if you're still listening to this after my little ramble fest here, if you like the new stuff, dude, more power to you, all right? I am so sick of people trying to talk other people out of liking the things that they like. Dude, I would be the last person to call you and you know, call you out on the carpet for liking the stuff that you like. Dude, if you enjoy it, more power to you, and I hope the next CD you love even more than the last, because, man, God bless. There are so fucking few things in this world anymore to really love and cherish, and then some asshole has to come along and just piss all over it and ruin your good time? Fuck that, dude, no. I am not going to be that guy, all right? I'm just saying that for me, for my participation... I'm out, you know? So, it's nothing personal. I just don't care to listen to an iteration of Dream Theater that isn't those five guys, you know? So, hopefully that makes sense. Was that the kind of Dream Theater discussion that you were hoping for, David? Write in and let me know. Anyway, to get back into David's email, though, he writes, Many thanks for producing a terrific podcast, and I hope this email finds you well. All the best, David Thornton. And uh, David, again, thank you very much for taking the time to write in. I mean, 
it's kind of a weird thing, I guess, that someone would write in and ask me to talk about something other than comics. But damn it, I talk, as you say, I talk so much about geek stuff all the time that it's kind of nice to be able to just kind of chillax a little and talk about comics or something other than comics. Or maybe talk about a movie or something other than a movie. Or in this case, fucking talk about a, about a band that I love. And that, at least in my opinion, never really got the credit that they deserve for being the creative and musical juggernauts that they were and producing, in my opinion at least, some of the best damned records of the 1990s and never got anything in terms of credit for it. So, yeah, it's just it's a nice little change of pace. So, anyway, to get back into David's email, though, uh, actually, I already finished it, so very good. Um, but, yeah, dude, thank you very much for writing, and I, I really hope that this little tangent was, uh, was uh, enjoyable for you. So... Um, you know, and if it wasn't, by all means, feel free to write in and say so. Just let me know. So, uh, I think I've got time for one more email here. Let's see what we've got. All right. All right, this is an email that comes from uh, Michael Bradley, dated August the 1st. Subject line is thanks. Michael writes, I'm late to the Trennis Magnus Punches reality party and I'm working my way through back episodes. Today I heard episode 33, where you included a promo for my Superman and Batman podcast. Just wanted to say thanks. And that I've been enjoying the show. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Michael Bradley. Dude, thank you. You know, I really enjoy your shows which is to say for those of you who don't know superman and batman the thrilling adventures of superman and then um uh, uh parallel lines which i think is all about the dc comics uh, tangent universe i just like michael bradley as a podcaster i'm going to support him and basically whatever it is that he chooses to podcast about all of this stuff by the way can be found at greatcrypton.com just for those of you who didn't know and so for somebody that you respect to write into your show and say, hey, man, I think you're doing a good job. You know, I mean, guys, Michael Bradley has no idea. He, look, he has no reason to even know my name. All right. But here he is. He's taking time out to write to me. Not only actually, fuck it, not even just to write to me. He's taking time out to listen to my show. And then he's taking more time out to write to me. So how fucking awesome is that? Anyway, so... I just think it's cool. So, uh, so Michael says, you know, thanks. Signed, Michael Bradley. No, dude, thank you. You know, uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, listen to my show and for taking the time to listen. You know, I really appreciate that. And uh, I appreciate feedback from all of you, really. Email, any kind of feedback or anything like that. Uh, that can be directed to trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. And anything that you send in is going to be fair game to be read on mic unless you say that this is not meant for public consumption in some way or another. And I've actually gotten several emails that way. Some, and I, a lot of them have actually led to some, fairly, you know, some very interesting discussion. But the person with whom I was corresponding, or persons made it very clear this is not to be read on mic, and so I respect their privacy. All the same, though, unless you make that uh, disclaimer 
at some point in the communication process, I'm going to assume that you are okay with your email being read and then responded to on mic. And so, again, that email address is T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com, Magnus at gmail.com. And uh, that's where you can get in touch with me because if you know nothing else, you know that I'm going to read... Uh, you know, read all of all of the email that I receive sooner or later. Sooner, I think, hopefully. Uh, all of that stuff is going to be read and responded to on mic uh, because, you know, I really do appreciate all of you uh, taking the time to, uh, to, to listen to my show and especially just to respond to it, you know. So uh, thanks to all of you. And I think that's pretty much all of the uh, feedback that I've got time for this week. So... Um, I think that's basically it. Now, I think for next week, um, I've, I've basically got... Actually, next week's content is actually sort of up for grabs at the time that I record this episode. So, um, I really wish I could tease next week's show, but unfortunately, I'm not sure what it's going to be. So, hmm. Uh, I guess that's just to be announced, I suppose. But either way, whatever it is that I end up talking about, bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality, is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality, at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled... T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T R. E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opening. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual, and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons, 
or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.